0: Coming up on The Media Project, Alan Shartok, Ian Pickus, Mike Spain, and me, Rex Smith. We'll be talking about what's going on in journalism this week. We'll talk about the notion of making journalism work for those not born into an elite class. We'll talk about that succession at The New York Times and the notion of both sidism in journalism. Does it work? Those topics and more coming up on The Media Project next. Oh,
1: meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption.
0: a wallow in corruption crime. In the media project, we have an opportunity for a conversation about what's going on in the news media during the week, and we are very happy to have you with us as we delve into this with some veteran journalists. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of The Times Union, now the Upstate American, here
1: with my former colleague Mike Spain. You doing okay? I am, I am I'm also formerly of the Times Union and Yes, formerly your associate editor <laughs> Well, there we are, <laughs> I hate to
2: say it, but it's a mark Of distinction on both of your parts oh, Thank <laughs> you,
0: very kind of you, I think That's what, he, mm. was he trying to be kind? There's something? Mm. something up there, that's Alan Shartok The CEO of Northeast Public
3: Radio Here with his still colleague Ian Pickus, how are you doing, Ian? I'm great, it's always fun to dip into the media Project and go from a listener to A participant, uh,
0: dip in oh, all, all right, good. yes, yes, well, let's Good to have one articulate young person in the room Where is Uh, he? (laughs) Okay, Alan, I really want your opinion on this Of course you do Of course (laughs) I do I'm always eager for your opinions Not that I always like them But I'm always eager to hear them Alan, there's a new editor named at the New York Times I saw that To replace Dean Bucket Because uh, traditionally at the Times Their executive editor retires at the age of 65 65 and out Youngster there Says 80-year-old Alan Shortoff Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So we'll talk about the uh, naming of Joe Kahn But the question that this raises is Comes to the question of something called Both-sideism And I like your take on this The term both-sideism tends to be Used derogatorily to refer to journalism That tries to strike that middle ground Between he said and she said Whereas if you can use analogy The new Notion is you don't just say This person says that it's raining outside And this person says that it's sunny The journalist is supposed to open the damn blinds And look out the window and see what it is yeah. Where do you come down on this Notion of how journalism fundamentally Ought to operate? Well there is such a thing as right and wrong Rex as
2: you know In other words in every situation One can take a look and see What the competing thoughts are And say okay I think this is right And this is wrong when you have both-side-isms, in other words, you want to make sure that both sides are, are accurately quoted, that's fine. I get it. I understand that your listeners or your readers are going to want to, uh, want to know that um, everything has been covered. And yet, I think journalists have a responsibility to sort of add perspective so that if there's something that is definitely wrong— you don't give it equal presence with, you know,
1: what is right. Mike, you like that answer? Yeah, I, I think that's good. I, I, I think it's important to... Thanks, Mikey. ...reflect... No, 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 <laughs> I... You I, can I,
0: come I, back. Thanks, week. <laughs> <for you. laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you need... The journalist needs to basically attribute what he's reporting or she is reporting and then give weight to positions that have weight to them and to give little or no weight to positions that have no weight to them. And, and we see that all the time. The trouble is it's really important to be perceived as unbiased and balanced by the public or they won't trust you. And then the work you do has much less value to people. So it's in that genre that I think a lot of journalists put in at least some semblance of the other side so that they can at least demonstrate that they tried to let either side, you know, express it. But if you're talking about factually, demonstrably factually provable events, like whether it's raining or whether Joe Biden won the 2020 election, I think it's important that you just state them as it is and not give credence to the, or it's sunny somewhere, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so It's a tough balance. Journalists need to... It, it's like the Supreme Court. There's a big debate right now about the Supreme Court being perceived as biased. And that will undermine the court's ability to do what it does. I think journalism in general, if they are perceived as being for a certain side, liberal, conservative, right, left, it isn't right or left, it's right or wrong. I agree, Alan, that's a good point. And when it's right, you say it, and when it's wrong, you call it out. Now, Ian, you run a newsroom, and I've been standing there as a
2: reporter has come up to you, and you've said, what about the other side?
3: Yeah, I think we've gotten into a little bit of a bind in the last six or seven years where you're seeing more phrases in print and on the air like claimed without evidence or even lied, which was a new ground for a lot of journalists to to say. I think the problem that we've run into is if half of, let's say, American politics or even uh, close to that percentage right now is a party in power or with some power that is publicly saying myths, truths, or is basing its platform on the 2020 lie. And those people are currently in Congress or running for election. It becomes very difficult to leave the mistruths out of your story when they are, let's say, the member of Congress. And that's something I don't think we've quite solved yet.
0: Yeah, I think you have a good point. When you recognize, as Alan says, that something is untrue, but it's being stated by a member of Congress. It is really hard. You have to call out the lie. But calling it a lie does put you in the camp of the opposition, doesn't it? It exactly. is actually leaving journalists in a very awkward situation, and journalists themselves are criticizing it. I'm looking at a column here from Perry Bacon, Jr., who's an opinion columnist in The Washington Post. And he is claiming that both CNN, which has announced that under new ownership, it is turning back towards straight news and away from the opinion and the commentary that is popular with MSNBC and Fox, That both CNN and The New York Times are making a mistake by trying to be as fair as they have been trying to be. I don't know. He says, if I were Trump, I would be ecstatic about these announcements because he thinks that it's going to give a green light for more of these lies.
2: Well, as we remember, Trump was a lying, 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 lying 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 liar and he was he he always just told one lie after another so as you say rex this is good news for trump nevertheless have our politics now come down to the point where we just lie where people just are allowed to lie and nobody does anything about it
1: Yeah, I'm always stuck between trying to move on and go forward, you know, as a community doing that, you know, and as a country doing that and letting there be accountability for what has happened in the recent past, January 6th, for example, or the 2020 election outcome. Should we allow somebody running for public office who's going to have enormous say in our future and and the future direction of the country? to promulgate a lie that that has been disproven so disproven that there's no question that Trump lost and lost big in the 2020 election. And yet, people will use that line that he had it stolen from him to ingratiate themselves to a, a fairly sizable part of the electorate, trying to win their votes. And it needs to be called out. Seventy percent of Republicans believe it, and so say they believe it. Say well, no, no, no. I, <laughs> that I mean weird. that just to clarify. A lot uh-huh. of times, when you dig down deeper, they say, "Yeah, I don't really believe it, but I know it really drives them crazy when we say it, so I keep saying it." You know, <laughs> you know, it, it's like the the birther thing with Obama. Not many people believed it once they're presented with the truth, but they love to say it because they know how offensive it is to their political opponents. But then others who really don't know hear them and then they do believe it truly (laughs) So it's a mess
0: It's awkward because a lot of the candidates, though, whom we are covering Or less in this community, I think, than if WAMC, for example, were in Georgia or Alabama Where there are primaries going on, where Republican candidates are vying for Trump's attention And therefore everybody's jumping in saying it was stolen. What would you do, Ian, if you have a reporter out there covering a primary and you've got candidates saying, yeah, the election was stolen?
3: Doesn't that put democracy at risk? I think it does, and I think at this stage you would have to do what the Washington Post and others sort of pioneered in 2016, which is to do live fact check in your story and call every single thing that you hear that is inaccurate inaccurate. If the entire primary is a debate about who can embrace the big lie, that's going to have to be part of the coverage, I think, and if, unfortunately, if the listeners or the audience is going to turn against you for that reason, I think you have to be willing to make that sacrifice to a certain degree. You know, we're covering primaries here in the Northeast, and it's interesting having spent a couple of weeks on the Vermont primary for House, those are not the discussions happening there, and I am grateful for that because it makes our job a little easier when the candidates are not on such an extreme.
0: Hmm. And democracy is is interesting because there is a great sense that, in fact, democracy is at risk in America right now. There sure. are efforts to, uh, well, successful efforts in a number of states so far to substitute political judgment in place of nonpartisan election officials to say that state legislatures will now have the final say on authorizing the votes in a presidential race as opposed to the vote count itself. Uh, and... How you cover that uh, is very difficult if you really believe in democracy. Uh, Journalism ought to support democracy, and you have to then call out these things. But then if you're in Oklahoma, say, if you're the editor of the Tulsa World or something like that, you are going to be the target. And I read these papers all over the country for my weekly newsletter the Upstate American. I read the Tulsa World, the Omaha World Herald and the Lincoln Star in Nebraska and those papers. And they are really finding it difficult, I think, to cover this stuff. Just a question, Rex. How does one get a
2: hold of the Upstate American?
0: So kind of you, Alan. Yes. You can just Google... Upstate American, WWW Upstate American is uh, what it is. Uh,
1: what do you do in that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you what he does. used to be every Saturday morning when Rex was editor and after he was in the editorial board senior position at the Times Union, on Saturday morning you could read his thoughts and his columns and his reasoning and his pontifications. And, <laughs> and when he did retire from the Times Union, he continued that on a platform called Substack. Which is a place of lots of great conversation going on online. And by the way, Alan,
0: one of the interesting things, and very kind of you to ask, is though, don't you feel, and I wonder if you do, do you feel a bit more freedom since you write two different columns a week? I do. Plus, you have commentary here on the radio. I feel a bit more freedom writing on a platform that is sort of my own, as opposed to being in the pages of the Times Union. I, not mm. that I didn't feel like I was telling the truth there, but don't you feel kind of free when you write your I Publius column, E Publius, I guess would be the proper way to pronounce it. In yeah, Latin. but I've always called it I. I do. <laughs> like the media project. <laughs> don't you uh, feel perfectly free to say what's on your mind? Well, Rex,
2: I'm going to disappoint you. I am sure by telling you a great secret. I have to write two columns a week. Mm-hmm. That ain't easy. Mm-hmm. And so, about uh, Friday, I write them on Saturday and Sunday. One on Friday, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. That's three. Hold on. That's no, three. no, no. One on Saturday. Oh. And one on Sunday. Oh, okay. That's two. And what happens is there is this incredible pressure on the left side of my brain. Hmm. What the hell am I going to write on this week? It isn't much more than that. And I'm sure it's something that you guys have all suffered with, you know, when you need to come up with subject or two. And what's happening as I get older... I'm finding that I tend to repeat myself a little bit more so that, for example— It's okay. Nobody
0: pays attention the first time. uh, Well, yes, (laughs) probably. But, but, (laughs) for example, I had a
2: conversation with Governor Kathy Hochul the other day. It was the first time she had admitted me to that inner sanctum. And I think I got at least three columns out of that. You got to go with what you got.
0: You know, actually, that's a great message to uh, journalists everywhere, or to any writer. When you're stuck, the answer is, do more reporting, right?: Yes,
3: exactly. You've got to pick the phone up.: <laughs> If you send
1: Ian, if you send a reporter out to cover an event and the event you anticipated didn't happen, you don't want them to come back empty-handed. You want them to find another story.
3: <laughs> it's so true, and especially in broadcast, where the show is an hour long. 365 days a year, no matter what. If the legislators aren't in town, if it's a holiday, if it's Patriots Day and the offices in Massachusetts are closed, that show is still an hour long. And that's where I think we probably earn our salary, is being creative, even when, you know, the normal. Run of stuff isn't happening To still come up with our stories And that's why sources are so important mm-hmm. Who you can call Who will actually who have something know, to tell you No. Know.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: now the problem with that Of course, I'm sure that you guys Are ready to pounce on it Is that you don't want to be obligated To the source, and that is always a problem So that if I know I have to write a column, and I could talk in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, to the head select woman. What happens when we have a disagreement? Am I going to owe that person something for having stepped in and given me the
0: material I need for a column or a story? Ah, You know, I think the point that Ian makes is so good, you have to find the story. Actually, I got a job that way once. I was a tryout at Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, and my first day of my tryout was Memorial Day. And Newsday was located then across the street from the National Cemetery at Pine Lawn in Millville, Long Island. So I arrived at this virtually empty newsroom on a holiday, and the editor said to me, go across to the uh, Memorial Day service in the cemetery and just write a story about that. You know, that'd be an easy thing to do, right? Well, as I was leaving, I stopped to say something to the security guard, and he said, oh, that was yesterday. They did the service yesterday. But I went (laughs) to the cemetery, and I found a couple guys hanging out on the tombstone of a pal of theirs who had died and interviewed them. And I wrote about children running around among the tombstones and these guys reminiscing about their pal— and honest to goodness, I think that's why I got hired, and I stayed for 11 years at Newsday. But I think it was because I came back. I didn't disappoint the editor. I came back with the But storage. did you tell
2: the editor, hey, you sent me somewhere that wasn't? Hey, dope.
0: Uh, well, yes, gently. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to treat your editors kindly. This is The Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. That's Alan Shartok here with Mike Spain, Ian Pickus, and I'm Rex Smith. And I said we would talk about the appointment of a new New York Times editor because it is relevant to this issue of both sidedism which has been an accusation against the Times in years. The new editor is not 65. He is now 57 years old. His name is Joe Kahn. He's a former international correspondent, twice winner of a Pulitzer Prize. He's been the managing editor. It's very clear that he was going to get the job. And um, the interesting thing is that his predecessor, the first black editor of the Times—well, there are many interesting things, but he is replacing Dean Baquet, B-A-Q-U-E-T, who is from New Orleans— Grew up rather poor Joe Kahn is sort of cerebral And serious where Baquet is kind of loose and friendly But the fact is The Times is staying with its Pretty serious, straightforward Approach in taking this hire And there is some question When you have seen other Major news organizations reach Out to different Communities and different kinds Of leaders, the Times is Sticking with An older white guy Very surprising, you might say The LA Times has recently hired an Hispanic editor There are now black women at the heads of uh, most of the networks And it is somewhat surprising The uh, editor of Columbia Journalism Review said Doubling down at the Times And it's an interesting situation Because the Times is different from every other news organization For one, it's bigger 10 million subscribers now and regarded as the best newspaper in the country, if not the world. So,
2: what does it say, do you think, that this is their choice? I think it says that, first of all, they have the ability to do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> Nobody is going to, you know, you know, nobody's going to question The New York Times. There was a period not that long ago when The Times was in real trouble. And they had to go to that Mexican fellow, wasn't am I right? To get a little bit of a Carla loan, slim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, to get a loan in order to continue. Mm-hmm. So the Times is now really much stronger than it was in the past, and is really the top voice in American journalism one way or the other. I think they have made a remarkable comeback.
1: Yes. The Salzberger family, which runs the Times, doesn't completely own it, but certainly leads the Times and has since its yeah. founding back in the eighteen. 18- well, they took it over shortly after it was found in the 1850s. The family has the prerogative of picking whoever they want as their editor, and they picked a very mainstream, very established, very qualified journalist. I think it's less important, although it is a good demonstration of, you know, when you have somebody of color or you have a woman as the leader, the figure that is leading an organization. What's more important is that they maintain a diverse staff, that they have a well-educated staff that represents all parts of the community. And I don't see that in peril. And I think they have done that. And I think they have hired lots of brilliant people. And that, I think, has been the result of its economic success. They're able to hire the top talent. And that continues their business success. So they, they, they seem to have an awfully good monopoly on news and storytelling. So when Queen Elizabeth dies, uh, which she may do at some point... Queen um, Elizabeth, whose
0: tenure is even longer than yours, amazingly. <laughs> <Alan>. <laughs> Thank you for that, Rex. I appreciate it.
3: Um, Actually, more like 15. I think so.
2: Yeah. So, so that there's a succession plan, is my point. Do all newspapers have to have an implicit or even secret succession plan so when somebody goes, we pretty well know who's going to take over.
1: Well, do all businesses have to have that if they want to be a successful business? And I think it would apply to newspapers and media organizations.
3: Sure. It wasn't too long ago that the Times did have a rocky succession after the Jason Blair scandal, and that accelerated the clock to, well, what we're talking about today, installing Dean Baquet as the As the leader, now we know if 65 is the traditional time when Times editors are kind of shown the door, Presumably Joe Kahn's Replacement is already In one of the Upper echelons If there are To name a, a Times There probably are A few candidates ready. Already yeah. Exactly yeah. Yeah. I yep. you're right. I, yeah.
0: I expect that's true yeah. And uh, that does make sense It doesn't mean that There won't be somebody From outside But the Times Has not gone outside To my knowledge As opposed to The Washington Post For example uh, Who went to Marty Barron, The editor of The Boston Globe When they needed Their past editor And then when Marty just retired They brought in uh, Sally Busby From the Associated Press uh, Again the first Woman to run the Washington Post newsroom So these kinds of things You can have a succession plan But you also need to be open to fresh Blood, <laughs> so to speak. I don't mean to sound like a vulture here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> And somebody is in a position to say yes or no to the plans that have been established right here at WAMC. You know, I'm an older guy now, and I'd love to see Ian Pickus sitting right here with us taking my place. But we still have a board of trustees. Somebody has to lay hands on all decisions. Aha.
0: Uh-huh. That's interesting Well, you've heard it here first, ladies Isn't and gentlemen The succession news? plan <laughs> <laughs> uh, How about that? Uh, but you never know You're exactly right Somebody has to be the one to make the decision At the Times It's the current generation of Salzburgers As Mike pointed out uh, A.G. Salzberger, the publisher But I'm sure he consulted with his family I've often wondered what A.G. stands for Do we know? Uh, Arthur? Arthur, but I don't know what oh, the Arthur G name. I can't remember what the G middle name is uh-huh. Yeah, But they're all Arthurs <laughs> That's how they differentiated him from his dad. Uh, yeah, so yeah his, that's uh, right. Punch Jr. Yeah, he would be the third. Punch. His day's granddad was his Punch. His was
1: yeah. punch, and punch. I think they all, uh, for the record, hated that nickname.
0: They <laughs> <did. Yeah>. As <laughs> well it, as
2: Jr., who was called Pinch, <laughs> and he didn't, like well, he didn't like it either. Didn't like
0: it either, right? Punch got the name because his sister was Judy. You have to be really old to know what that mm-hmm. refers to, Alan, right? Um, not, not that I meant to spotlight you with that not question at all. at all, Alan, of course. No. You've always been kind, right? <laughs> not. <laughs> the point—part the, of the point that is made here uh, is here's an interesting article, again, from Columbia Journalism Review. Let's make journalism work for those not born into an elite class. And, you know, there is some sense that the New York Times and the other elite bastions of journalism tend to be run by... And tend to be delivering messages for the understanding of folks who are in a semi-elite, the upper middle class of America, the people who are the politically knowledgeable, and that you need a newsroom, as Mike said just a minute ago, that is diverse, and that's a really hard thing to do—a newsroom that reflects the cultural and economic and geographic and racial and ethnic diversity of the community. That's hard to do. How do you try to do that? Well, its, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Difficult.
3: You know, it's—it's it's something to, to think about very hard about how you get different types of people in. And I I look at my own career path, and I would not say I'm an elite by any stretch. Joe Kahn was the editor of the Harvard Crimson, and I was the editor of the Albany Student Press, a sports editor, so there are different paths. But I had the privilege to live at home for a year of grad school. I was making $7 an hour to be a sports writer, and my parents didn't charge me rent and I had that grad school year before I showed up at at WAMC, and a lot of people would not have the ability to do that in order to get their foot in the door in newsrooms. And that's something that I'm trying to think about as someone who looks at resumes for internships and job applicants is, what did it take for this person to get to this spot today? It's a different path maybe than traditionally where a certain type of person could live with a relative in Manhattan for a summer and get the internship that would land them their next job. And I think we've got to rethink what kinds of qualifications we're looking for in, in some degree. Now, the person still has to be able to do the job, and that's the hard part.
0: That's exactly right. The qualification, one element of qualification is the perspective that somebody brings based upon their background. And sometimes you... You intentionally acquire some of that. You know, I'm lucky I went to this great journalism school called Columbia, you know, which makes me part of the elite, I guess, right? Not only did you go, but you graduated first in your class. Well, but but I'm a preacher's kid from South Dakota. You
1: know, I mean, I'm really an outsider. And so, but still— But I think that makes you better at what you do. But still, there there seems to be a bias against people who— did come in You know Bill Keller The former editor Of the New York Times His father was The CEO of Chevron So he had A, <laughs> a very well Funded education And yet he has Turned out Even after he left The Times You know He he went and helped found an organization a news organization that covers aggressively covers criminal justice issues and brings to light a lot of injustice i mean it's not like if you come from that background you can't do really really good journalism and you can you can report but we need to so, and I think there are scholarship programs, there's internships, and there's funding. Maybe Report not for America
3: yeah. Report. is a great Ex- example. Right. Absolutely, yeah. which yeah.
0: picks up people and puts them into newsrooms and funds, although Report for America is kind of more subsidizing newsrooms. But I guess the selection of the reporters is consciously aimed at diversity, and the, the Hearst Fellowship that our newsroom at the Times Union used has exactly that. Still I, if you're a Hearst you're ahead of the game. Well,
2: if you're
1: <laughs> a Hearst yeah, it has brought in people of, you know, from all over the country, uh, older, younger, people of color, people with backgrounds uh, you're very absolutely different.
2: Absolutely right. But who is the um, publisher of the Albany Times Union now? Well, well but that.
0: that's the
1: point. I'm not talking about
2: the publisher. I'm talking about the newsroom. No, you know? but I'm talking about the publisher because in the end power
1: resides at the top, doesn't it? Well, absolutely, but if the power is used in a very positive way by funding programs that promote diversity across newsrooms, it's a good exercise Right you
0: are, Mike. I think there's great value. The best example of this actually is Chris Churchill. I mentioned Chris last week, the Times Union Metro columnist, and Chris uh, has written about the fact that growing up as the son of a single mom, uh, they were on food stamps, and I think the way that he grew up gave him a different perspective on the news, and readers recognize it. His voice is important. The pages of the Times Union. So uh, there's actually an example of the value of bringing in different voices. Finally, today, Alan, you're somebody who has to interview powerful people often. You just mentioned your interview with the governor. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump was being interviewed by Morgan Piers. uh, Piers Morgan.
3: (laughs) One of those names. Same difference. Either way, right? Reality show. There's your both sides journalism. And Morgan told
0: Trump that he had not produced hard evidence of voter fraud, and the former president got up and walked out of the interview. You ever had that happen, where somebody actually walks out on you when you ask a tough question? Never. It hasn't happened. Maybe that means I'm not asking tough enough questions. But as you know,
2: the pig was sitting down in the gutter. The man was thinking thoughts he could not utter, and the pig
1: got up and slowly walked away. (laughs) <laughs> well, one, of, one of the problems, though, Alan, I know, is not everybody will agree to come in for an interview. There you go. That's yeah. the issue. Like a congresswoman from the North Country for She
3: example. will not. If you're listening, she owes us a congressional corner from February 2017. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you're listening and you have
0: access to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, tell her to call WAMC. And that is it for this week. Went fast. That was Alan Shartok and Ian Pickus and Mike Spain, and I'm Rex Smith. And we thank you for joining us this week on the media project. The are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers of freedom of the press.